everybody, and welcome back to A Trip Through the Movies uh, after what was a very long time. I am Brianna McCann. And I'm John Blinn. Brianna McCann, how are you? I am doing wonderfully, John. How are you? Well, I'm doing pretty good, uh, but I gotta say it's a little big and empty in this radio room right now. Because for the first time ever, Brianna McCann and I are trying to record an episode for the first time not in person. So, if... That's the Case in point, right there, case in point. If <laughs> if there are any jumbles like that where we're tripping up on each other or whatever, just know that uh, I-, I can't see when Bree's about to talk right now. All I can see is the black mirror that is my phone. Yeah, my, uh, my apologies. And then I will apologize, too, for, like, pauses that are longer than normal because I want to wait and make sure that you're done before I jump in. We'll make it work, guys. We're all in this together. And, like, we thought about doing this over a Google Meet or something, but, you know, we're all about old-timey sort of classic styles on this podcast. And, uh, number one, Google Meet, the, the internet connection here isn't reliable. And, Bree, I don't know if it's reliable in your living arrangements right now. But on top of that, you know, it, it just wouldn't feel right to do this where I could actually see you, you know? You know what? I, I agree with that, John. I mean, we've been doing this in masks the whole time where you can only see half my face anyways. I mean, I think this is just the best way to do it. Yeah, but at least in that situation, I could sort of like watch your eyeballs like begin to like grow and like bulge as you got excited about something or, you know, a tear uh, run down your face as we were about to talk about something sad. And, and I, I sort of knew when you were going to jump, but uh, now not the case. Yeah, you know what? You're right. You're right. I'm sorry that I can't, you know, watch you also get very excited in your, you know, very uh, exuberant hand gestures. You know, can't see that, but uh, I can imagine it. We'll make it work. I feel called out. (laughs) It's good. Like, it has to be excitement. (laughs) Anyways, in this week's episode, we are going to be discussing a spookier movie because guess what? It's October. And usually, and I, Bree and I are just sort of all over the place in terms of our genres and what we like to cover and things like that. But it was Bree's idea to do something a little bit scarier or, you know, spookier as, as you worded it uh, <laughs> for the month of October. So Bree, why don't you introduce this one? Absolutely. So, you know, if you're doing a classic movie podcast and it's spooky season, you kind of have to talk about the phantom carriage. Um, that's one of the most iconic I think, you know, horror films, silent films, um, just in general, films of all time. So it's a 1921 Swedish silent film uh, directed by and starring Victor Sjöström. And it's based on the 1912 novel, Thy Soul Shall Bear Witness, which is incredibly dramatic. But also, like, once you watch the movie, it absolutely makes sense. That's such a heavy title for a book. (laughs) It is, yeah. <laughs> I think that really goes to show just how miserable the 1920s probably were. Or what, when was <laughs> when was the book written? So the book was written in 1912. Okay, well, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like, what what a heavy title. And that's what I think the biggest thing about this movie and this story is, is just how heavy it is. Uh, there are a few other movies in this world that have made me feel the way that this one did after I finished watching it. 
And it was just sort of like this gloomy gut punch where I'm just sort of sitting there like, wow, that was, that was heavy. You know, that, mm-hmm. that, that is going to stick with me for, for a little bit. But that doesn't mean that it's not a fun watch because there's just so much about this movie to fall in love with and so much about this movie to point out, oh, hey, look at all the great things that came from this. And I think that's why this is the perfect movie to start a sort of a spookier series that, that we might uh, be building on in these next few weeks. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point, John. That's one of the things I love best about this movie is the way that it just creates such an atmosphere. Um, and it really sticks with you, you know, after you even during the movie, it feels like somebody's like physically beating you up, but also you can't look away. Like you can't stop. And, you know, once you're done, it it feels even more so like that. It's something that sticks with you. And even, you know, this was my second time watching it and it's still, it stuck with me in the year between when I watched it the first and the second time. And it still hit me just as hard the second time. And, you know, I think that that's why it probably endures so much too. Uh, I'll, I mean, it's 100 years old this year, which is kind of crazy. Um, it came out on New Year's Day, 1921, which, you know, as, as we get into the summary of the movie, you'll see why that's kind of ironic. And I see what you did there with that. But, you know, 100 years old this year, and it's still just as much of a sucker punch. And one thing that I really like to add is I've only seen a handful of silent movies, most of which you've guided me to. Mm-hmm. And you'd think if you're not accustomed to to those movies, you would think that a silent movie wouldn't really be able to scare you, right? And I was having a conversation with a friend about this movie after we watched it, and I mentioned to him, I said, that was, it was one of the most terrifying movies I've ever seen. And mm-hmm. he's like, well, how is that the case? It's a silent movie, you know? How, how, are, you, how are you that scared by it? And I had to explain to him, I was like, it's not scary in the traditional way it didn't bother me in in that way but there are just moments in this movie where you're watching these events unfold and it just chills you and mm-hmm. you're, you're just you're just so in that moment and so drawn in by just the tragedy uh, of these events um and, and honestly the the images that you could describe as traditionally scary aren't what makes this movie scary they're cool images like they're they're haunting and and i just remember thinking the whole time like this looks so cool but that didn't scare me it was the rest of the story and the acting and just the passion from everyone involved in this movie that really manages to make you feel just sort of dreadful yeah i think i mean i really think you hit the nail on the head with that it's not scary in a traditional like jump scare kind of sense, um, which, you know, I, that's a lot of what modern horror is based on. So I get that that would be hard, you know, for people to kind of wrap your head around it, but it's, it's creepy and spooky in an atmospheric way in a way that's, you know, you get the, if you're watching a movie, and there's a jump scare, you get scared for a couple of seconds, but you know, then it passes, but this one is so deeply unsettling that it's perhaps even scarier because it sticks with you. Like, you won't stop thinking about it. And I I have not felt more impressed with a horror movie in a long time. So, you know, thank you for showing me this one. 
But Bree, there, there's a pretty great mastermind, a, a very obvious successor, uh, or not successor, that, that's the wrong choice of word there. But there's a very obvious mastermind behind this movie, and I know that you know a lot about him, and I only know a little bit about him. So why don't you tell me and the audience a little bit more about the man behind this movie? Absolutely. So Victor Seostrom, um, sometimes known in the United States as Victor Seastrom, but I'm going for, for a more traditional uh, Swedish pronunciation with that one. I am ancestrally Swedish, so I, I feel a kinship here. <laughs> so Victor Seostrom both directed this movie and starred in it uh, as its lead actor, which given how incredible both of those contributions are, like this man really working overtime. Um, but he was, uh, in his time, a film director, a screenwriter, and an actor. Uh, he was born in Sweden, September 20th, 1879, and he began his career in Sweden. Um, he worked primarily in the silent era, with his best-known films being The Phantom Carriage in 1921, obviously, uh, He Who Gets Slapped in 1924 with Lon Chaney and Norma Shearer and John Gilbert, and the movie The Wind in 1928 with Lillian Gish. Um, all of which are, you know, very acclaimed and silent films and just films in general that are really held up today. Um, and he was Sweden's most prominent director in that golden age of silent film in the, the 1920s. So he was really like their national export there. Um, and so that's really kind of like the general gist of Victor Sjöström is he is just an incredibly prolific director. Um, he does not like a ton of acting, but the stuff that he does, you know, if you're going to take only a couple acting roles, it's maybe a, the best way to do it because obviously he's the star in the phantom carriage. And, you know, we'll talk more about his performance throughout the, the summary of the movie, but he does that. And then later in his life, uh, pretty close to his death, like actually three years before he dies, uh, whenever he's 77, he plays the leading role in Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries, which is another one of those movies that is held up as, you know, a paragon, not only of Swedish film, uh, but of foreign film and is one of Bergman's best works. Um, so he really, throughout his entire career, both on screen and off, really comes to define Swedish cinema, uh, but just kind of be a, a great director on the whole, you know, kind of bringing that Swedish cinema to a global stage, but then also doing, you know, like I mentioned with he who gets slapped and things like that, a lot of great work in America and, you know, directs the Scarlet letter with Lillian Gish. Uh, he really has a pretty profound and global impact as an actor and director. Um, you know, and a lot of those are the movies that really endure today. So a lot to be said for his legacy and his work there. And Brie, one thing that I want to add to what you said is you mentioned, uh, Wild Strawberries with Ingmar Bergman. And, you know, Ingmar Bergman is a huge director um, in, in Swedish film. Swedish, correct? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that's what I thought. Swedish film. And, you know, he, he's probably best known for The Seventh Seal. Mm -hmm. And this movie struck him uh, in a way that he, he talks, he seems to talk about a lot. If, if you look into this movie, uh, there's not a whole lot of information on it, which Bree and I were talking before the show is really surprising considering the impact that it leaves. But one of the main things that you'll find when you're looking at this movie is that Ingmar Bergman was just that this was his movie. And he was reported to have first seen it at the age of 15. And after that, TCM says that he watched it 
every year after that, uh, after he first saw it, which is incredible because that just goes to so much show how much inspired him. You know, I'm a big Star Wars guy. I love Star Wars, but I don't. The Empire Strikes Back, right? That's my favorite one. I ha, I don't watch it every year. You know, Do you, is there a movie Bree that you you watch every year? Oh boy, I, there actually are a couple like spooky season ones that I watch every year. There's one for Noir November coming up next month that I watch every year. But like nothing that's not like thematic basically that I choose to watch every year. I I don't think I'm that dedicated to any particular film. Right. So to see that dedication from Bergman, it just goes to show you how much he loved this movie and and how much it really inspired him. (laughs) So to think, you know, imagine you're Bergman, right? And, And you watch this movie and you watch it every year from the age that you're 15. And then you find that director who's inspired you and that actor and they're willing to play the leading role in a movie that you are now making. Like what an incredible story that is that within this movie. So cool. That is, I'm sorry. I thought you were done. I didn't mean to no, you're you good. I, I don't have anything else to add there. <laughs> that really is like so cool. You know, I just wanted to chime in and, and agree with you there. Like that must've been incredible. And, and the passion from, from this guy, and I, I, the last name, Bree says it perfectly. So, you know, just pretend Bree's saying it. I'm not even going to say his last name because uh, I, I came in with it pronouncing it wrong. And I know you know the right version. Um, but just to, to point out some more dedication from him, from our boy Victor here, uh, he is so dedicated to this movie that, you know, he, he plays the role of a bum in this movie and uh that's not to say that homeless people are bums not trying to say that at all but this character is literally a bum um and in order to truly prepare himself for that imdb says that he disguised himself as a poor man and he spent times in the slum spent time in the slums of stockholm just to get himself prepared for this movie and you know we mentioned that this movie is based off a book as well, which which brings me to a really interesting story about how he you know made this movie happen. So he has this deal with the author of the soul, "Thy Soul Shall Bear Witness" uh, <laughs> that began in 1917, and the deal was that he was going to adapt at least one of their movies or one of their novels into a movie every year, uh, and this was before the Phantom Carriage. So he made three of these adaptations, um, all of which had been loved by critics, the audience, and the author. And they had taken place in a rural setting, and he felt that he wanted to change that. And he suggested the urban city and this this sort of gritty atmosphere that we see the Phantom Carriage take place in. And the author is a little skeptical about that, thinking, "Uh, you know, maybe let's not do that. I'm not sure if I'm a fan of that. And uh, he sits down. And he writes the script in eight days. And he goes back to the author of the original novel and spends two hours in her mansion reading and performing the whole script by himself to show her sort of what his, what his image is. And she just responds by offering him dinner and gives an, appro- gives an approval to the movie. And I can't imagine Brie doing this whole movie especially a silent movie. How do you even perform that by yourself to another person uh, like that? Like that's, 
that's just insane. I can't imagine what that exchange would be like. That is crazy. And I love that story and just like the image inherent in that so much. So, Brie, I mean, could, could you walk me through his career? I mean, obviously, we, we can point out his passion all day long, but can you walk me through his career a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of looking at his, his life in general, um, you know, he was born, like I said, in Sweden. When he was only a year old, his father moved the family to Brooklyn, but then his mother died when he was seven. Um, so kind of a, you know, tumultuous childhood, to say the least. But then he returned to Sweden, where he lived with his relatives, and began his acting career actually at age 17 uh, as a member of a touring theater company. So the first thing he actually gets involved in before the writing or the directing is the acting, um, which, again, watch this movie. That is not surprising in the least. Um, but he you know, was working on the stage, and then as the motion picture industry started to grow, he was really drawn to that and made his first film in 1912 under the direction of Barit Stiller. Between 1912 and 1923, he actually directed another 41 films in Sweden, which is just an insane amount of productivity. Um, and some of those are now lost, unfortunately. Um, but some of the ones that survive include The Sons of Ingmar from 1919, Karen, Daughter of Ingmar from 1920, and of course, The Phantom Carriage from 1921. Um, all of those based on, you know, kind of, kind of as you were just mentioning here, uh, stories by the Nobel Prize-winning novelist Selma Lagerlof. So a lot of those films, um, kind of as we'll see in The Phantom Carriage, deal a lot with, you know, subtle characters and very, like, atmospheric settings, um, a lot of times really playing into using just a Swedish landscape um, and kind of taking advantage of, you know, the beautiful physical atmosphere that they had to, you know, kind of essentially take on a life of its own in the movies. And so he really kind of pioneers a lot of this naturalistic kind of idea uh, in filmmaking, especially by using on location filming, which wasn't necessarily super, super popular at the time. Um, but he's also kind of cool known as a pioneer of continuity editing in narrative filmmaking, which we definitely see some of that uh, in the Phantom Carriage. But in 1923, you know, he was starting to get international uh, attention for these incredible movies he was making. And Louis B. Mayer of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer gave him an offer to come work in the United States, which Sjöström accepted. Um, and so in Sweden, while he had clearly acted and directed, in Hollywood he just devoted himself um, to directing. And there he kind of switched from that Swedish name to the more American one that we see, Victor Seastrom. Um, and the first one he made in America was 1924's Name the Man, uh, based on another novel. So a lot, a lot of times his work is coming from novels. Um, and he then, in 1924, uh, also directed the movie He Who Gets Slapped, which I keep bringing up because I love that movie and I think it's a great one. But it's also a great kind of comparison if you're looking at the unsettling qualities of The Phantom Carriage in 1921. Uh, he Who Gets Slapped um, is a clown you know, who's in love with this girl in a circus um and some things happen but it's also very like unsettling and affecting in very much the same way that the phantom carriage is um so you see that kind of continuity he's very very good at unsettling atmosphere um but he would direct a lot of those stars of the day so like greta garbo and john gilbert lillian gish lon chaney norma shearer like the biggest stars of the time 
he directed them in another eight films in America um, before making his first talking film uh, in 1930, taking advantage of, you know, sound for the first time. Uh, but he wasn't really in love with the things that he had to do uh, to adapt uh, to direct those talking films. Um, so he returned to Sweden at that point where he directed two more films before his final directing effort, which was actually an English language drama filmed in the UK, uh, 1937's Under the Red Robe. So after that point, he stopped directing. And over the following 15 years, he kept acting in the theater, um, doing, you know, bunches and bunches of different roles until, you know, age 78. Again, kind of as we were mentioning earlier, he gave his final acting performance, which is another just incredibly affecting performance um, and probably, you know, his, his best known role past the Phantom Carriage as Isaac Borg in Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries. Right, that was quite the recap. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, just looking at this, uh, one thing I wanted to point out in that is you, you said, what, 41 movies he spent mm -hmm. uh, before the Phantom Carriage or within that time period. Um, and no, was it before or within the time period? It was within that time period. Okay, that's what I thought. But that just goes to show how important it is to hold on to th this fragile uh, art that we have because, you know, uh, uh, the world is becoming very digital and it's harder to, I, I think, uh, treasure this kind of stuff. It's harder to remember that it's there, you know, in that digital world where there's just so much tossed out at us. And we're seeing less and less of, of these uh, of these instances where we're truly keeping care of our of our physical media. And I, I think that that's that's huge. I mean, uh, think of uh, Metropolis, you know, that's that's been missing that missed scenes for a really long time. And I think it's still missing parts of it. And that's considered one of the best movies ever made. So, you know, it's it's crazy to, to think that this is one of we consider this to be one of the best movies ever made. And a little fun fact here: Charlie Chaplin said that it was the best film ever made. Um, we consider it to be one of the best films ever made. And to think that there are forty-one out of these very few that we actually have, who knows what else was out there? Maybe this was like one of the worst. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, fair enough. <laughs> I doubt it. I really do. But who's to say? Who's to say? So in classic A Trip Through the Movies fashion, we're going to go through the letterbox synopsis before we dive into the plot, which reads, It's New Year's Eve. Three drunkards evoke a legend. The legend tells that the last person to die in a year, if he is a great sinner, will have to drive during the whole year the Phantom Chariot, or the Phantom Carriage. I don't know why Letterbox changed it to Chariot. Uh, <laughs> it's literally the title of the movie. Uh, but this chariot picks up the souls of the dead. It's a pretty simple one from Letterboxd there, but you know what? Uh, that's, I mean, that's what it boils down to. <laughs> that's exactly right. what it boils down to. <laughs> but amongst that that uh, legend there, uh, the emphasis on these on these drunkards, one in particular, uh, is what makes this movie as great as it is. I would say. Bree, are you ready to dive dive into the Phantom Carriage? I like that moment where you said, are you ready to die? I think that really, I think that fit well with the movie. That was great. Because <laughs> the question becomes, are you ready to die, actually? Is your soul ready to die? We're going to spin that, make it sound purposeful. 
You know, I, I thought about cutting out that part where I tripped up on my words, but you really just sold that point. So now it's a mistake that has turned into a success. So thank you for that, Bree. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so happy to help. So as we uh, dive into this movie, uh, as my co-host so wonderfully explained, it's taking place on New Year's Eve, which again is why I love that they released it on New Year's Day. Like what a, what a creepy thing to do. They knew exactly what they were doing. And I love that. But on New Year's Eve, uh, it starts with seeing that a dying Salvation Army sister, Edith, has one last wish, and that is to speak with David Holm. So we find out quickly uh, that David is one of those three drunkards sitting in that graveyard. And he, you know, they're just sitting there kind of messing around. And he's like, hey, guys, you know, do you want to hear this story about my old friend George? And he tells them the legend, you know, that the last person to die each year that has to drive death's carriage and collect souls of everybody who dies the following year. And that George had died on New Year's Eve the previous year. And, and George, so, sorry, again, oh, this no, is the phone ahead. call. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, George is an interesting character, I would say, before he dies. Um, this guy is just dwelling on this tale um, it seems to be all the time. They show a flashback uh, of New Year's New Year's Eve, and uh, he's really just freaked out. You know, he's the, the flashback is he's drinking with David Holm and his buddies, and they start getting aggressive and rowdy. And he's like, "Hey, hey, don't get all too violent. You know, if you guys die, you're gonna have to be the driver of the the phantom carriage, and you're gonna have to pick up all these dead guys." And Bree, George is very very afraid of of having to drive the phantom carriage so let me ask you this is it that bad is driving the phantom carriage that bad because think about it right these guys are dead now they got all eternity right they work for death okay and death his whole thing is eternity too right their 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 shift is for a year okay if you're dead for all of eternity is a year really that bad? You know, that's a good question. I I mean, practically no, but I don't know that their discrepancy is necessarily with the time as much as they have to like go and their job is to like watch, you know, the most depressing, horrifying thing in the world like over and over and over again. So I mean, like maybe a year feels longer than a year. You know what? <laughs> Maybe I was focusing on the wrong area of this. <laughs> I mean, also a concern, though. Like, that's a good question. I mean, you have a very solid point. <laughs> Especially when you're, like, fresh off the planet. You know, like, a year still feels like a long time to you. So, you know what? Right. That's fair. That's that's totally fair. <laughs> uh, one thing I want to mention about the start of this film, because up to the point we've already discussed, so much happens that just makes this such a powerful and impressive silent movie, an early movie. Uh, to start, the movie starts off indoors, and it is colored with some colored film. Uh, it's sort of yellow, uh, dark orange, if you will, very Halloween orange, if you will. Um, a hybrid of all those colors, I would say, um, depending on the shot. And... You know, that's something that was, was always sort of – that blew people's minds from what I understand for, for the longest time. You know, when you think about 
earlier movies that people always point out when, when the film is colored like that. And the minute that a character steps outside where David Holm is now, you know, drinking and they're, they're looking for David Holm because Sister Edith is dying and we need to find David Holm so she can have her last wish and so on and so forth. The minute they step out into the real world where David Holm is, there's this cold blue that they slap onto the film and it just really sets the mood for what's to come. I, I felt because it's like you have this warm, already miserable scene, but then you just go outside and the minute it was, it was that blue. I just felt like dreary, you know, it really just made me feel like this is, I don't like this town. I don't like the city that they're in. And I think that really goes to show this bold move uh, by our, our director to put this setting in a city. You know, it's, it really adds to, to this movie and the messages that it carries, I think. Yeah, that's a great point about the colors in particular, because that's, I, I mean, the way that this film still exists in such a high quality as it does is incredible. And we are so fortunate for that. Um, but the color is such a huge part of that atmosphere because it does like you're, you know, somebody's dying, but like you're still inside of this like house and it feels like, you know, kind of warm just because they're using those colors. But just like you said, John, the minute you step outside and it turns to that blue, it just, you're like, oh man, like something's happening here. You know, I'm not a fan of whatever it is that's happening, but I don't know exactly what it is yet. The use of that color contributes so much to the atmospheric quality of this film. And the atmosphere is really, you know, what drives this, I think. And on top of that atmosphere, something else that I felt was the first gut punch of this movie is they do not show David Holm for a really long time. And they don't, they, they introduce him, but you don't know that it's him uh, until after he tells the story of the Phantom Carriage. But what's interesting to me that, that really sort of, I, I just remember feeling sad because you have this dying woman and she's begging to see David Holm. And I keep thinking, what, is David Holm a doctor? You know, is it her lover? What is it, right? And they're looking for him, and they, they find his wife, and they bring his wife back to Sister Edith, and they say, you know, Mrs. Holm, where, where's David Holm? And she's just in shock. She's in this almost catatonic state, and, you know, she, she doesn't know. And immediately I, I start thinking, oh, wow, like this guy has to, has to take care of his wife. His wife isn't okay kind of thing. You know, you – you were naturally inclined to think that David Holm is a good guy. At least I was. I don't know if you felt the same way when you first watched. Yeah, I definitely did. Um, because exactly like you said, they go a very long time without showing him or at least showing him in the context that you're aware that he is David Holm. Um, so I definitely did. You know, you see this like beautiful young woman who is on her deathbed calling for this man. And you assume he's got to be just like, you know, either a doctor or some, you know, tremendous, like, you know, romantic, you know, tragic kind of lover. And whenever you find out that's not the case, like you said, like, that is the first sucker punch. Because you're immediately like, wait a minute, like, something can't be right here. I'm missing something. Which, you know, then there's a whole rest of the movie to tell you what you're missing. But, like, still, that, that initial just, oh my gosh, you know, what is this is, is so masterfully executed. And one other point I want to add to the beginning of this movie is as David Holm 
tells the story of the phantom carriage. And at this point, we don't know it's David Holm. It's just three guys sitting in a graveyard drinking. Again, so you, you get this poor impression of them. If you drink in a graveyard, you got to get your life together. I'm sorry. <laughs> Actually, I'm not sorry. You needed to hear that. If you're drinking in a graveyard, you need to hear that. <laughs> yeah, if you're if you're listening to this right now doing that, please stop doing that. <laughs> uh, but he's telling this story, and it shows these images of the phantom carriage and its driver, and it's this Grim Reaper-like figure on this raggedy looking carriage with these raggedy looking horses and it's just so ominous it's really really such a cool image but what makes it really interesting in terms of uh, film production is that the carriage and the driver and the horses are transparent with everything in the background but you can still see them obviously you know it's not like it's invisible um, to us but it's just sort of like a silhouette of transparency, if you will. And they just show the the carriage going around and gathering souls. And uh, it's just such a cool image. And that's – I know it's probably – there's definitely a better word for it. But the whole time I'm thinking, I'm just like, this is awesome. This looks so good. So I had to do a little digging. I was like, how did they do this? And the answer that I found uh, reads that – the special effects were mainly done with double or more exposures in the camera, as optical printing was not available until the early 1930s. Also, several layers were used to enable the ghostly images to appear to walk around in three dimensions. So, I mean, that just goes to show you, without optical imaging in this, that's ma- or optical printing, I'm sorry, that makes this so much harder. I, I don't know how, I, I can't imagine the amount of time that they spent on every scene with this phantom carriage. Yeah. Like just by you reading that, that must've been a lot. <laughs> it, it, I think I read somewhere that it take, it took them five months to, to piece all that together. Oh my gosh. So it's just, well, it's I, I can't imagine just stacking these, this film and, you know, just really just trying to make that look as, as good as it does. Um, yeah. Because it looks fantastic. And another difficulty that came with this, and this is the last uh, point that I'll, I'll acknowledge on this, because you just have to you just have to watch it for yourself. If you're into this stuff and you're into the technology behind this, I highly recommend watching this movie if you haven't seen it already. But they mentioned that uh, because the the cameras were hand cranked and, and uh, how sensitive everything was, they had to crank the cameras at the exact same speed. Uh, in these different exposures, you know what I mean? Like that you have to crank the camera to get these different exposures that create that end result uh, to appear natural. So not only is it difficult in post, but it's also difficult while you're running the cameras. And I, I cannot imagine what the work that that would take. How many, how many takes alone uh, it would require to, to make that successful? Absolutely. Like that's crazy. But after that story, yes, uh, I'll let Bree take back over here. Sorry, I've been rambling. Uh, but yeah, we were, it's it's found out that David Holm is is just a drunken bum, one of the uh, friends or, or comrades of the the, the dying uh, Salvation Army worker. Finds David Holm immediately after he tells this story, sitting on the on the graveyard, and they go, "David Holm, David Holm, like Sister Edith's dying. She she needs to talk to you. Like 
will you come see her? And he, he's like, ah, you know, I, I don't care. Like, I, let her die. I don't want to see her kind of thing. And you just realize how awful this guy is. Yeah. He's your narrator for so long. And then, oh, oh, he's awful. Why, why did I listen to this guy? Yeah. I, that's the best way to put it. I mean, it really kind of like you were saying earlier, it's just that first sucker punch, you know, once you kind of put this together. And so his friends try to drag him to go see sister eat it. And like during that, a fight breaks out. David Holm is struck on the head with a bottle just before the clock strikes 12. And we see, you know, in one of those scenes that, you know, John just described so wonderfully, uh, David's soul emerges from his body as the carriage appears. And the driver, lo and behold, is George from the story that he just told, you know, everybody. So George starts kind of taking him on this, like, ghost of Christmas past journey um, through his life to, like, how he got to the point where he was. Um, And George tells David, you know, about how David had once lived this happy life. Uh, with his wife and their two children and his brother until George had led him, him being David, astray. And it's shown in a flashback, David was jailed for drunkenness, but before being released from prison, he saw his brother, who had been sentenced to a long term for killing a man while drunk. And, you know, he's basically shown him to be like, hey, look, you did this. Like, this is your fault that your brother killed a man and is going to be in jail because you got him drunk. So David goes home. He finds that the apartment's empty, um, and he becomes absolutely furious, becoming determined to track down his wife, Anna, have his revenge for, you know, being left behind and abandoned in this way. So during that search throughout Sweden... David arrives at a Salvation Army mission on New Year's Eve, which is where the stuff starts to hit the fan. I will turn that over to you, John, if you want to take us through the next little bit of our story. Yeah, but before we dive too far ahead, I just want to I want to break down some things that that I noticed uh, in this in this flashback of of George meeting or well, not a flashback. He he meets George in in the real time of the movie. Well, revisits George, I, I should say. Um, and they're in this, you know, transparent silhouette, uh, as I said earlier. And George, as, as Bree mentioned, you know, tells him, hey, I'm sorry that I ever made you become a drunk because it ruined your life. And it's like, remember how good your life was before you met me? And going back to the coloration of this film, they show this really heartwarming flashback. It's so cliche. <laughs> but I think it's cliche because this might might have been one of the first movies to really do that type that type of uh loving family montage (laughs) they're like running around picking flowers and like the wife is waving joyfully from a distance like you've seen it a thousand times um but it's in it's still it's it's still super heartwarming i don't care if it's cliche like i said i think it set the cliche but whatever um but it's in this flashback where it's really the first it's really the only happy moment that you see in this movie, um, this film is dyed red. And it's the first truly warm color that they choose to dye the movie. And I thought that was a really interesting choice. That is really interesting. Because again, like it kind of ties into, you know, the, the earlier ones in the Salvation Army, 
where that is like a little bit of a warmer color, you know, so whether or not the things that are actually happening are, are warm, it's always some implication of some warm feelings. And then, you know, if those warm feelings aren't there, it kind of adds to it. But in that scene, you know, kind of like you said, it's like that cliche happy family montage. And, you know, you're like, oh, wow, this seems nice. And then it's no longer nice very quickly. And the very quickly transition, the very quick transition, <laughs> I, I was trying to find a way to quote you, but also it just didn't work out. It was a mess. Um, <laughs> sort of like David Holmes <laughs> life. <laughs> oh, good one. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad I saved yeah. that. Um, the, the next scene is, you know, David Holmes sort of missing. He's drunk. He's with his brother. He's with George and the family, they go out looking for him. And there's this shot of David Holm passed out on a curb by the road and his kids and his wife just sort of sit near him and by him. And then there's this shot of. David Holm just laying by the road and he gets his whole body in it and his whole family in it. And it's just, it's just such a devastating shot. And there's usually one, one shot that I'll point out per movie when we do this, not intentionally, but I, I've looking back, I, I think I do this at least with one shot. Most movies, um, this one, I was like this, this is just the best shot so far. No, I, I agree. Like that one is so so powerful because you do like you kind of have this like you know the image of his wife standing on top well not like on top of him but like above him looking down on him like holding the kids you know it's kind of this this domestic family scene but something is so terribly amiss um and it's really it's framed like a painting which is so good like visually um yeah i think that's a really really powerful shot but to, to get back into the plot, then, those are really the only two points I had to add there. Uh, and then uh, I'll, uh, I'll just hop back in right where Bree left off. David Holm ends up in this Salvation Army house uh, that has just opened where Sister Edith works. And she's talking to her coworker before David Holm arrives, talking about how they just opened up the building and how, you know, they're talking about how they're going to do great things and how monumental this is, how powerful this is from God, and all that sort of thing. And in comes David Holm, and he's disgusting. <laughs> he's so disgusting that the sister who is not Sister Edith uh, acknowledges that they should put his clothing into the sterilizing oven. I have never heard of a sterilizing oven before, but that is insane. Brie, when was the last time you used your sterilizing oven? Oh, just last night. <laughs> <laughs> never. Yeah, I've never heard of that either. <laughs> um, but yeah, David Holmes, disgusting. He comes in, and they're so welcoming to him. They take his coat off, um, and he like they offer him food, and he just doesn't want any food. He's like, I just want to sleep. So he goes to bed, and... While he's sleeping, Sister Edith takes his coat and she fix she fixes all the holes in it and makes it so that, you know, when he goes back out, he'll have a nice warm jacket. And he David Holmes wakes up and he puts his jacket on and he sees the sister that isn't Sister Edith because she goes to bed. And uh, he asks her, you know, who did this? Who who fixed my jacket? And 
the other sisters like, oh, Sister Edith, um, you know, I, I will, I'll try to go get her. I, th- I think he, or David Holmes specifically asked for her or the, the other sister goes to get her, one of the two. Um, but just as David Holmes is about to leave and he looks like remorseful that he doesn't see her, blah, blah, blah. And suddenly they, they fetch the sister who fixes his coat. And she comes out, and she's like, oh, hi, David Holmes. And he's like, oh, hello. And he he looks all pleasant for a second. And then, like a maniac, he just destroys this coat and everything she fixed right in front of her. And you just realize, oh, he he's a psycho. Like, this guy's a scumbag. This is like, I, I, I that's awful. I mean, there... <laughs> I there are just some terrible things that like you've seen in movies, but for whatever reason, this is like this just hits me so differently. It's like he he, he plans it out. It's it's atrocious. It's like premeditated like meanness. Right, and he's like he's playing it up, you know, like oh please go get the sister. Ooh. Right, and then she shows up, and he's like ah, you, what would you waste all your time for? And he tells her something that that is interesting to me. He, he says something to the lines of, I like it better with the holes in it. Or mm-hmm. I, I prefer it this way kind of thing. And that's interesting because we see him throughout this movie try to change. And the things look like, oh, maybe he could change here. Maybe he could change here. And he doesn't. And, you know, maybe part of that act where he wants the sister to come see him. So he, maybe he didn't plan on on thanking her. But then he decides not to because it's more comfortable to just be this way. Um, it's it's harder for us as human beings to change, you know. So I, I think that's that's the message here, um, and I, I think it's really strong. So he's about to leave, and the sister uh, tells him before he leaves, she's like, "Just just wait. You got to promise me one thing before you leave. It's New Year's Eve. Whenever he came in, she says next year at New Year's Eve, come back to see me." Because I prayed that you would have a good year. And I just want to know if God is going to answer my prayers or not. And David Holmes is just sort of like, and he, he leaves. Um, but this is one of the things that I think is really powerful about this movie and the way that the story is told. Because it is told, you know, in present day and then flashback in present day, we know that David Holmes is still a scumbag. Right. And I think after this moment, they go back into present times where you can see him being a scumbag. And, you know, it's right after the nun says, well, I just want to know if God answers my prayer or not. And David Holmes is still a dirtbag when we come back and, you know, oh, well, God didn't really answer her prayers. But as the movie goes on, there are so many circumstances that happen and they feel so convenient to changing David Holmes, you think, huh, those conveniences almost seem divine themselves, right? So I think that's Mm -hmm. a really interesting concept into the role that religion plays in this movie. And Brie, I'm curious to hear what you think about that. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. I think that this is such an interesting movie because of the way that it kind of juxtaposes you know, somebody who's very faithful with somebody who has really been, you know, kind of lives a downtrodden life. So doesn't necessarily have that element of faith. And, you know, whenever he, 
leaves after she's like, hey, can you, yeah, I know you're a jerk, but can you come back and at least tell me how to good gear? Um, he says to her, I'll come show you. God didn't give a fig for you or your twaddle. And so, you know, it's just kind of this, this element that you see, this kind of interplay between the two of them, which, you know, kind of develops into uh, something else. But that she is so faithful and believes so firmly in the fact that, you know, this, this faith is important and that even if he doesn't have it, it will save him. Whereas he's like, hey, you know, girl, you're crazy. Like, this is, this doesn't matter. Like, none of this is real. And I think that that's, you know, as a religious person, I find movies that kind of have this examination of faith and of, you know, what is sometimes the absurdity of faith. You know, I think that's maybe the most important thing if you're, if you're a religious person is to sometimes acknowledge that, yeah, you know, some of it is, is you taking a, a leap of faith that, maybe seems kind of absurd and the way that this movie kind of looks at that you know her just strong conviction uh in her faith and him saying well look at how much my life sucks clearly you know there's not somebody up there I think is a really really fascinating part of this movie a really interesting thematic undercurrent that I I like a lot so with that in mind we cut back to George and David and George tells him all right you got to fill this promise and David's like I'm not going I, there's no way I can face her right now I'm not going and George basically tells him hey uh you could die right now you know they, they left you for dead in the cemetery you could totally die and be the next phantom carriage driver is that what you want yeah, you want to do that so he sort of takes his soul and he just sort of makes David Holmes follow him around a little bit so he takes David to the Salvation Army where Sister Edith is dying. And this is where we learn a little bit more about their relationship. So, Bree, if you would like to take that, feel free. Sure. So, you know, Sister Edith in this flashback is revealed. You know, it finds she finds him again in this bar, goes and tries to get him to come to this meeting. And he just kind of like laughs it off, like throws away the flyer or whatever that she hands to him. And even his like friend at the bar is like hey man you know that was that was maybe a little not cool she just kind of leaves and you know you're like all right whatever but it turns out that he does go to the salvation army meeting and while they're there you know we see that they at least have like some level of rapport you know he watches her walk out of the bar even after he's he's been mean to her and everything like clearly there's some level of like something there you know so we get to this salvation army meeting and they're continuing just to you know talk and it's clear that sister edith you know is very determined basically to make something work here and at that meeting, um, you know, one drunk that she had convinced to go back to his wife is there and has, you know, so fully, like, committed himself to God and is doing great. And she turns to David and is still, you know, believing he can do it. But again, that idea of faith um, as they're kind of having this whole conversation. And he still is just not having it. Um, and it turns out that there's another lady at the meeting that Sister Edith is talking to. Um, and it turns out that that woman is Anna, who is David's wife. David doesn't recognize her. But later in the course of helping her, Anna tells Sister Edith who she was 
um, and Sister Edith, even though I believe at this point she has told somebody like, oh, David's the man I love. Like, this is why I'm doing all of this. Um, once she finds that out, she's like, oh, man, got to get this guy back with his wife, which, you know, mad respect for her. She's in love with this guy and is like, oh, my gosh, let me get you, get you back with your wife. Like, girl's the best. So she goes to do that. Um, and those efforts don't necessarily go well. Um, she tries to get them back together. Um, and at first, you know, it seems like they're going to make it work. Like there's this shot of the two of them just kind of like standing there, like they embrace, like it seems like things are going to go well. But again, you know, you can't, can't really necessarily change old habits. Old habits die hard. And soon David's behavior just kind of drives Anna away again. Um, and one night, you know, his wife pleads with him not to expose their children to consumption. Um, you know, again, this is like a weirdly relevant movie as well in the year 2021. Um, but it's, you know, he has consumption and he's just kind of going around coughing everywhere. And, you know, his wife's like, hey, can you uh, not do that around the kids? But he refuses. And Anna locks him in the kitchen and tries to flee with the children, but faints in the process of doing so. And then David takes a particular course of action that I know, John, you were uh, excited to talk about. Yeah, so <laughs> she locks David behind this door and she's just drastically trying to get out of the house. She's packing things quickly, trying to get the kids away from their sick father who really just does not care who he infects. And one thing that you and I forgot to mention is that the disease that Sister Edith is dying from is consumption, which she got from David Holmes. So that just adds even more to, to the power of that, their dynamic. Um, and, and, you know, it, it seems very much so that, that Anna is, is going to have it too. But before I, I get too off path here, uh, so she's drastically trying to get the kids to safety. And the acting done by uh, Hilda Borgstrom, who plays Anna, is fantastic in this scene because she just looks horrified. And it's her expression that I think scared me the most in this movie. It is the look that she gives as David is trying to break through the door uh, that, that is the scariest part of this whole movie. But the way that David is trying to break down the door to get to his wife and kids is with an axe that he bashes through the bathroom door in a way that you've seen a hundred times before because plenty of movies have tried to do it as in a way to pay homage to The Shining uh, where Jack Nicholson's character is trying to knock down a bathroom door with an axe to get to his wife um, and you know for, for years Brie I always thought whenever I saw that in movies oh this is, this is a callback to The Shining but no The Shining and Stanley Kubrick were calling back to the Phantom Carriage. And it's shot, both of these movies, they're shot almost frame for frame. Uh, Stanley Kubrick recreates this, this moment brilliantly. And in my opinion, this is one of the scare. this is the scariest moment of the movie. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. It is just downright terrifying. Like you said, you know, the, the acting done by the actress playing his wife, it's just downright terrifying. Like it is hard to think of many 
scenes, you know, in any movie where there is just sheer terror portrayed in such a genuine way. Again, not in like a jump scare slasher film kind of way, but it just in a genuine, like fearful way. And because I was curious about this, this was ringing in my mind. The Phantom Carriage also borrowed that door bit. No way. Yeah, from a 1919 film, uh, D.W. Griffith's Broken Blossoms, it was ringing in my head that they had also done that in there, too. Um, And they did. So that comes even earlier that that's been a thing. So, like, it's just everybody, like, watches some earlier movie. It's like, you know what? That's good. Let me use that. It's a genuinely terrifying bit. You know, it, it works in one movie. It works in every movie that it's used in. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And for me... The scariest part about this scene is, in The Shining, it's very obvious that Jack Nicholson's just going to kill them. In this movie, the scariest part is you don't know what David Holmes' intentions are. He just wants to get back to the kids and to his wife. So I think it's, it's this act of aggression, but it's also this act of desperation. And that, to me, is more scary. Um, and it's even more powerful because just a scene before is the first time he reconnects with his wife in years. And they have this really perfect hug. And the shot of that hug is fantastic. And it's just amazing. And you feel good. And you're like, maybe things are going to be okay. And then this happens. And I, I, I'm i just, I'm baffled by it. Uh, but we could talk about this all day, Brie. I think we I think we need to keep rolling. <laughs> yeah, we, we could go on and on about this. Maybe, maybe that's its own episode sometime. <laughs> the, uh, his history of the specific door scene. <laughs> But yeah, want to keep keep taking us through? Sure. So we come back from this flashback, and we see that George and uh, David Holmes are back in Sister Edith's room where she's dying. And because she's dying, she's able to see them in a spiritual form. And she sees David, and she just sort of tells him, like, I'm so sorry that I've magnified your sins because I brought your family back together. Like, it's my fault, and, you know, I... I've made life worse for you now. And this sort of breaks David. He's dying, or she is dying from this disease that he gave her. And even on her deathbed, where he's made no progress, she is forgiving him. She's blaming herself for this. She's still trying to help him change. And for whatever reason, this works for him. And he just sits and he cries and it's such this is this is the best part of of uh the performance uh, of victor's performance here i would say um he just has this moment of just pure defeat but also you know peace and, and love for this woman and he just crawls to her and he's kneeling by her bed and you know edith looks at him and she sees his regret and is able to to die in peace because for the first time since she's known him, she sees, oh, he's capable of, of feeling bad, which means he's capable of knowing that what he's doing is wrong, which means he could change it. And it's just, it's it's powerful. It's We went from the scariest scene to probably the most powerful in the, in the movie. Yeah, I, I don't. I genuinely don't think I could say that much better myself. Like, I love that bit. You know, I said, I kind of said this in my most recent letterboxd review of it for the second time I watched it, but like just the love that she feels for him. And it's, 
it isn't even fully developed. Like they don't hit you on the head with it. I, cause I'm a sucker for, you know, a, a tragic romance. I would have loved like a whole extra hour of this movie. That was just like her pining. I would have eaten that up like hotcakes. <laughs> but I, I think that that's perhaps the most devastating part of it is just the love that she feels for him because she so fully believes she can fix him. And well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil the end of it here, but she so fully believes in that. And even up to the last with as awful as he has been to her, she still feels so much love for him. She loves him so much that she tries to get him together with his wife. Like it's the incredible, incredible thing. Again, it's that belief that you can fix somebody and loving them so much that you will not stop trying. Even if it literally kills you, it's so devastating. And that scene, I mean, if it doesn't bring a tear to your eye, you might be a psychopath. <laughs> Which would be fitting for the Halloween month, but that's true. Everything. <laughs> so then Bree, do you want to close off this movie? Absolutely. So after that gorgeous, gorgeous scene, um, George doesn't take her saying that others will come for her, which, you know, again, is kind of that idea of the religious belief, you know, it's going to be like angels and, and God and all that great stuff. So he then shows David, takes him to his wife, Anna, and she is afraid of leaving her children alone after she is going to, you know, probably die of consumption. So what she's planning to do is to poison them and herself. And so it becomes this scene, um, which, you know, kind of once we summarize it, we'll, we'll talk about it more because this is one of those scenes that, oh my God, it, it just cuts you open. But David is sitting there watching his wife about to poison herself and the children and is begging George to do something. And George is like, hey, my dude, I have no power over the living. I can't do anything for you. Um, and, you know, he's sitting there and David begins to pray. He's praying. And all of a sudden, George is like, OK, you know what? You maybe maybe got something going on here. So as this is going on, David suddenly regains consciousness in the graveyard. He's no longer with George. And he's like, oh, you know, I got to go stop this. So he rushes uh, to the house. He manages to stop Anna. Um, and, you know, it says in the, the Wikipedia summary in the last sentence, and I think that this is maybe the best way to describe it. With great difficulty, he convinces her that he sincerely wishes to reform. And that is how the movie ends that he tells her, you know what, I'm going to do better this time and we're going to make it work. And that's how it ends. Um, this last, this last scene, I am just constantly just, Oh my gosh, like this shakes you to the core. I think for me, this is perhaps the most profoundly disturbing and affecting scene of the movie. And a lot of that comes down to Victor Seostrom. Like you have never seen anybody act for their life and the way that he does in this whole movie but in this scene in particular there is such just a haunting wild quality to his eyes i have never seen somebody so possessed in acting as i have in that moment like it doesn't even feel like you're acting because he is just operating on such a different plane um and it is just it's one of the all-time great performances and even just like talking about it, I'm starting to get a little like misty eyed and like chills just just thinking about it. But my God, if you haven't seen this movie, you need to watch it for the last like five minutes alone. I 
would say, and I've been thinking about this since we've watched it, which was a little over two weeks ago now, that this is one of the best performances in anything that I have ever seen. Um, and I just wanted to toss that out there because I feel like it's completely warranted. Um, and, and it's warranted in these last just couple scenes you, is really where, where you see it drive home. But one thing that I wanted to point out here with this last scene with Anna is there are two things that really just oh, they get my heart is when he starts crying after he's regained consciousness and he goes back to her and he's like, I'm going to change. Like I'm going to change. And she just, she's like, yeah, I, I, I guess. And like, she's sort of unresponsive and just taken aback. And then he starts to cry. And that's when you sort of see Anna snap back into it. And she's no longer catatonic. She's no longer, you know, I'm going to poison myself with my kids. She's just back there and she's grounded again because here David is crying in front of her. And she asks him, why are you crying? And he tells her, and this chills me, that I want to change so badly, but nobody ever believes me. And you have to wonder, you know, if you were someone like David Holmes and you wanted to change, but you didn't feel like anyone thought that you could, would you listen to the people who who wanted you to, you know? And I I think that's one of the most powerful messages in this. You know, maybe uh, it's up to us as as human beings and, uh, you know, just to to be more open-minded to one another and to acknowledge that, we're all capable of change, and even even David Holmes, you know, it seems like he he's going to pull it together. Yeah. And uh, the the second thing that I want to sort of conclude on that I think that there's no better note to to end this on is that uh, the moral of this story in a conversation with George that takes place as they're heading to uh, Anna's or or Sister Edith's, I don't remember where, but. Uh, George tells David Holmes that if there was one thing he could, like he could, he would tell every human being uh, to, to pray about. Uh, he would want the prayer to be, "Lord, please let my soul come to maturity before it is reaped." And it's just it's a good line. I mean, there's nothing else I can add to that to make it any better. I'm not going to sit there and explain it. I just think on its own, that's that's killer. Yep, I agree. <laughs> It's hard to, to distill a movie down to, like, one short sentence and its theme, but, like, it does, and that's perfect. And, I mean, that's really all I have on, on this movie, Brie. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out a, a last little bit of, of a story that I found about this movie that I think is just awesome. And then, you know, I would love to hear your closing thoughts, and we'll call it an episode. Yeah. But – this last little fact that I got, I got to include, and I didn't know where else to put it. So I was like, this is an end of the episode. Uh, on October or on, on April 15th of 2005, there's a Norwegian heavy psychedelic rock band called W E or we, I don't know which they go by considering I'm not Norwegian. Uh, <laughs> and they made a live soundtrack to this movie while it was screening in an atrium and they wore cloaks and their vocalist would sing the written passages that took place in between the scenes. And I just think that's awesome. That is rad. Oh, my God. Right? How, how amazing is that? That's incredible. 
That's all I wanted to include. I think that should be my closing note. Nothing I say is going to top that. That's fantastic. But Bree, closing notes, what, what do you have? I don't think anything I could say would, would top that either. But, you know, just again, if you haven't seen this movie, it is available on YouTube in beautiful quality. Um, it's a true classic. You know, if you're looking for something to watch for spooky season, go ahead, watch this one. Um, we can't promise you're going to have a good time, but, you know, it, it'll make you think. And that's the best you can ask for. And with Bree's point, I will second that. Please watch this movie if you haven't checked it out already and you like classic films or silent films in particular. And considering it's 100 years old, I can very safely and very confidently put it into the description of this episode. So if you're interested <laughs> after hearing us talk, you can check that out. And uh, we're hoping to, uh, to put out a few more episodes with you. But, you know, Bree's got a very busy schedule and, you know, we're no longer in the radio room together. So bear with us, but we're hoping to keep making some content and uh, keep sharing these movies with you guys. So with that, we will see you next week. <laughs>